It's a new day for Roman Judea. Since 63 BC, the Jewish homeland has been under the control of Rome, first the Republic and then the Empire that succeeded it. Since then, rebellious factions have done their best to oust the invaders, carrying out surprise attacks in the hopes that it will drive them out of the country for good. In all that time, however, the Romans have refused to yield. But at last, there's hope on the horizon. A new emperor, Hadrian, has been crowned and has allowed the Jews to return to their capital of Jerusalem, and, what's more, has given them permission to rebuild their holy temple, the first of which was destroyed by the Babylonians in the 6th century BC, and the second of which was leveled by the Romans themselves during what's become known as the First Roman Jewish War between AD 66 and AD 73. The people of Judea are optimistic, to say the least. For the first time since the invasion, at last they'll be able to rebuild on what is the holiest site in their faith. But, as you might expect, nothing goes as easily as all that. Sometime later, Hadrian reneges on his promise and not only demands that the temple be constructed elsewhere, but also begins deporting the Jews to North Africa. Needless to say, the citizens of Judea are furious. It's the last straw in a series of disappointments ever since Rome took control of their nation. Luckily for them, one man rises up to lead them against the Romans and their tyrannical rule. Known as the Bar Kokhba Revolt, after the man who led it, Shimon Bar Kokhba, he would, through his military strategies and tactics, single-handedly manage to oust the Romans and establish an independent Jewish state. While it wouldn't last very long, however, it would become a symbol of freedom and birthright for future generations of Jews the world over. Who was Shimon Bar Kokhba? How did he and those under his leadership lead a successful revolt against the Romans? And how did this independent Jewish state become a symbol, an archetype of sorts, for the future state of Israel? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome to the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. For those of you who have been following this podcast from the start, you know that several of my episodes at least touch upon the Roman Empire. This isn't exactly by choice. It's simply because much of the known world in antiquity, that is Europe, Southwest Asia, and North Africa, had dealings, be they directly or indirectly, with Rome. It almost was to be expected at the time, given the empire's size and vastness at its height. But some nations had more violent dealings with Rome as they tried, time and again, to resist the ever-expanding sovereign state on the western shores of the Italian peninsula. One such country was Judea, present-day Israel, and while she was ultimately consolidated under Roman rule, there was a brief time that she successfully resisted and became an independent nation. It all began way back in 63 BC, when Pompey the Great, a general who was partially responsible for Rome's transition from the Republic to the Empire, sounds very Star Wars, doesn't it? Then again, George Lucas took many cues from Rome's history in the creation of his epic saga, gained control of much of the eastern Mediterranean following the Third Mithridatic War. This conflict, in which the Roman Republic emerged victorious against King Mithridates of Pontus, a region in what's now northern Turkey, greatly expanded Roman territory. While stationed in that remote part of the world, Pompey and his forces were asked to intervene in a skirmish in nearby Judea, which, at the time, was ruled by the native Hasmonean dynasty. Though King Aristobulus II had assumed the Judean throne three years prior, another member of the same dynasty, one Hyrcanus II, vowed to take the crown. What ensued was a civil war of sorts between the two royals and their supporters. But with Pompey's intervention, the conflict was brought to a swift and decisive end, not in any of the party's favor, mind you, but with the siege of the Judean capital of Jerusalem and the annexation of the country as a client kingdom of the Roman Republic. It was Pompey's involvement that ended Jewish independence in Judea. 
Fast forward some 150 years, Hadrian is crowned emperor in AD 118, and while he initially is sympathetic to the Jews' plight, he soon reneges on his promises. With his strong dislike of all other faiths but his own, that is, Roman polytheism, he exiles the Jewish people from their ancestral homeland and deports them to North Africa. Those that remain are barred from performing circumcisions and other religious rites, such as the keeping of the Sabbath. To make matters worse, they're not allowed to rebuild their holy temple in Jerusalem, where those that preceded it have always stood. This naturally draws ire from the citizens of Judea, and, as tensions mount, they begin organizing, in around AD 123, several guerrilla forces that haphazardly attack the Romans by surprise. In response, Hadrian sends for an extra legion, known as the Sixth Ferrata, to defend Roman Judea from the uprisings. In addition, he appoints a ruthless governor, one Quintus Tineus Rufus, as the leader of the province. This Rufus is notoriously harsh and even takes advantage of several of the country's women. But the final straw for the Jews comes when the emperor establishes a city adjacent to that of Jerusalem, known as Aelia Capitolina, after Jupiter Capitolinus, the chief god of the Roman pantheon, he starts building a temple dedicated to the deity on the exact site of the proposed holy temple. Despite this slap in the face, following the initial attacks by Jewish guerrilla forces, the citizens of Judea remain fairly quiet. Over the next nine years, they regroup and reorganize. Though their surprise attacks up to that point had been somewhat successful, it was clear they needed strong leadership in order to oust the Romans from their country for good. So it was that one man rose up from among them to take charge, completely unaware that he would one day become a national hero to his people and their descendants. His name was Shimon Bar Kokhba. Little is known of Bar Kokhba's early life. Even his name is a misnomer of sorts. It's believed that his real name was Shimon ben Koseva, or Kosiba, as it's sometimes interpreted, which can either indicate his place of birth or his father's name, Ben being the Hebrew title meaning son of. What is known, however, is that by the time he walked onto history's stage, he was a leading general in the Judean army. No sooner had Hadrian returned to Rome in AD 132 did the Jews seize the opportunity to fully launch their rebellion. Under Bar Kokhba's command and leadership, Jewish guerrilla forces were able to successfully capture up to 50 Roman strongholds within Judea, as well as some 985 villages and towns both within her borders and beyond them that had previously gone undefended. Once the various settlements were seized, Bar Kokhba and his troops fit them with massive defensive walls, as well as clandestine subterranean passages in which the soldiers could deliver their intel and operate away from the prying eyes of enemy Romans. But one of their greatest victories was the reclaiming of Jerusalem later that same year. With this major turning point in the conflict, Jews from all over the known world, and even some non-Jewish people, volunteered to aid Judea in her campaign to drive out the Romans. It was at this time that Judea declared itself independent from Rome, and its people appointed none other than Bar Kokhba himself as Nasi, or Prince. His first order of business was to establish the capital at his headquarters in the heavily fortified city of Betar, in the Judean highlands, right smack dab in the middle of the country, which also served as the base of the Sanhedrin, or High Jewish Court, at the time. It was during this period that the citizens of Judea began minting their own currency as well, with coins bearing the slogan, The Freedom of Israel in Hebrew. With his armies having incurred several devastating losses and crushing defeats at the hands of Bar Kokhba and his forces, Governor Quintus Tineus Rufus soon implored the emperor for help. Hadrian responded by dispatching one Publius Marcellus, a Roman general, as well as the governor of neighboring Syria, to aid Rufus and supply reinforcements. 
but this too proved fruitless. The Judean armies, on Bar Kochba's orders, decimated not only what was left of Rufus's legions, but those of Marcellus as well, driving them all the way to the sea. As such, the Jews were able to take back the Judean coast, but the enemy weren't willing to give up without a fight. With the mighty Roman navy dispatched to the region, they launched several naval campaigns against Judea. Their superior naval might proved effective, leveling the playing field and leading to a tug-of-war of sorts for power and dominance over Judea's long and strategically important coastline. But Hadrian knew his armies couldn't capture the Jewish homeland by sea alone. Having received word of the rebels' ferocity and determination, he knew that he would have to send in even more reinforcements. So it was that he drew up a plan to dispatch his best generals and soldiers from across the empire to the region to aid their fallen and wounded countrymen. One of said generals was none other than Sextus Julius Severus, governor of Britain, as well as the former governor of Germania, Hadrianus Quintus Lollius Urbicus. Both men, especially Severus, were renowned throughout the empire for their military prowess and strategies. They were seen as troubleshooters, that is, they were sent to troublesome provinces, and, according to contemporary accounts, quote, brought peace through war, unquote, by quelling any and all opposition to Roman rule that may arise. Britain and Germania both had the reputation of being two of the more volatile of Rome's possessions at the time, but, under Severus's and Urbicus's respective leadership, they had been tamed. With these two powerhouses being sent to Judea, Hadrian was assured that the Jewish rebellion would be stopped once and for all. By A.D. 133, a year into the conflict, there were around twelve Roman legions stationed in Judea. They hailed from every corner of the empire, and from such disparate provinces as Britain, Syria, and Egypt. But skilled as they were, their efforts time and again proved fruitless against the Jewish insurgents. Severus, ever the shrewd tactician and noting the sheer size and number of the rebel forces, chose not to engage in open war right away. Instead, he opted to besiege Judean strongholds and Jewish-held fortresses, halting the arrival of both food and supplies to weaken their armies. Upon doing this, however, his attacks escalated into all-out war. So driven and vicious were his and Urbicus's forces that they managed to destroy all fifty of the former Roman strongholds, and virtually leveled the nine hundred plus villages the Jews had reclaimed the previous year. Soon the entire country was gripped by the throes of war, and both sides suffered tremendous casualties. Hadrian could scarcely believe the news he was hearing from the front. So dire was it that he didn't even send his customary message of, I and my army are well, to the Roman Senate when they convened. For three years, between A.D. 132 and A.D. 135, Judea enjoyed her independence, despite it being marred by near-constant fighting. Shimon bar Kochba bravely and valiantly led his guerrilla forces in several victories against the enemy, and served as Nasi, prince, over the land. The Jewish people were overjoyed. At long last, they would be free again as they had been prior to Pompey's siege of Jerusalem over 150 years before. Some rabbinic scholars of the day even believed that Bar Kochba was the Messiah as foretold in the Torah, the Jewish holy book, known by Christians as the Old Testament or Pentateuch. But the war was not over yet. The final battle of the conflict took place in none other than Betar, the aforementioned capital and base of operations for Bar Kochba, located in the Judean highlands. It was arguably the most important military stronghold in the entire country at the time, largely due to its strategic location on a mountain ridge that overlooked a valley on one side and a vital artery known as the Jerusalem Bet Kuvrin Road on the other. In A.D. 135, Hadrian's armies besieged Betar on what's known as the saddest day in the Jewish calendar, Tisha B'Av, or the Ninth of Av, a summer holiday that commemorates the destruction of the First and Second Holy Temples in Jerusalem, at the hands of the Babylonians and Romans respectively. As Bar Kochba, the Sanhedrin, and Betar citizens fasted and prayed, the city's defensive walls were first breached and then felled. Following a bitter and intense battle, every Jew in the city was slaughtered. It was here that Bar Kochba died, fighting to the finish 
finish until he too was cut down by Roman soldiers. To add salt to the wounds, Jewish doctrine dictates that a body must be buried within 24 hours, but Hadrian would not allow the people of Judea to bury the dead for six whole days. Though a few smaller-scale battles took place after the fall of Betar, particularly in the caves surrounding the Judean desert, where the famed Dead Sea Scrolls would be discovered in the 20th century, the war was essentially over, with Judean independence having been lost as a result. No sooner did the Romans emerge victorious than they turned the country into a proper Roman province. First they barred the Jews from living in Jerusalem. The city, which was renamed Aelia Capitolina per Hadrian's initial plan, became fully Romanized with temples to their gods. The Jewish people were only allowed in the city on Tisha B'Av to commemorate their dead in the war. The Romans plowed Judea's fields with yoked oxen. Judean settlements were not rebuilt, and, in fact, much of her population was either sold into slavery or relocated to North Africa, namely Egypt. On top of all this, Hadrian changed the name of the country to Syria-Palestina, with Syria being a reference to the larger neighboring province of Syria to the northeast, and Palestina being the Latin name for Philistine, a reference to the ancient people who lived in the region, and whom all Jews and Christians will recognize as the race of giants against whom David squares off in the Bible. Needless to say, the persecution of the Jewish people continued well after the end of the rebellion. Until Hadrian's death in AD 138, several edicts were issued against them, barring them from practicing their religion. The study of Torah was banned, as was the observance of the Sabbath. Practices such as circumcision and even worship in synagogues were also outlawed. The Sanhedrin, the Jewish high court, was dismantled as well. Faced with such devastating odds, the Jews were either forced to assimilate to Roman ways or face death. Many chose assimilation, but several others, namely rabbis, scholars, and sages, chose the latter, opting to practice their faith freely or die trying. Countless did die, becoming martyrs who are still honored and venerated by Jews the world over to this day. Were it not for the persistence and determination of those involved, the Bar Kokhba revolt could just as easily have been yet another minor conflict in history, one of several, that would no doubt receive a brief honorable mention in the history books and nothing more. But in the three years that Judea was independent from Roman rule, something changed within the Jewish people. For centuries they had been persecuted, driven out of virtually every land in the known world, and their ancestral homeland time and again being annexed by outside forces. But this short, wondrous period of freedom showed them that they could maintain autonomy once more, that they could, in fact, be free from foreign rule as their ancestors had in centuries past. It was this self-same drive and determination that led to the foundation of the modern state of Israel in the 20th century. Is it a stretch to say that this monumental achievement can trace its roots all the way back to the Bar Kokhba revolt? Maybe. But what is undoubtedly true is that this rebellion marked a turning point in Jewish history, one that would ultimately lead them out of bondage and towards complete and total emancipation. Thanks for listening. I hope you found this episode both enlightening and insightful. As always, I learned a great deal while filming it, and I'm glad to share my findings with my listeners. If you've enjoyed this and all my previous episodes so far, and would like to continue receiving weekly history lessons in your inbox, then please consider becoming a monthly supporter. By visiting anchor.fm slash historylovescompany, you'll find a support button on the page. Clicking it will take you to three monthly support plans that fit every budget. Remember, listening, liking, and sharing also help, so please do so wherever you get your podcasts. Join me again next week as we embark on yet another epic journey to the past, right here on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you then. <laughs>